0: In this episode, I talk to content creator Darren Saunders about his kind of music. Then, podcaster Tobin returns to play Celebrity Birthdays.
1: This is 90s and Noughties UK, a podcast on UK pop culture of the 90s and 2000s. If you want to contact the show, email 90sandnaughties at gmail.com, tweet us on at 90sandnaughtiesUK on Twitter, or check us out on Facebook, 90 uk.
0: I'm joined by podcaster Darren, who's here to talk about his musical journey in the 90s and noughties. Welcome to the podcast, Darren. Um, Fill us in somewhat.
2: Hi. Um, Well, yeah, that's a a very, very broad question. Okay, so my musical journey is uh, not one that I think you've really touched on much in the podcast so far. I mostly came through metal uh, and punk throughout the 90s. Starting with uh, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and working into Green Day, and then uh, Offspring, Rancid, and then from that into um, the likes of No Effects, Pennywise, uh Mill Colin, and so on and so forth. Uh, and um, obviously, there was a lot of uh, Brit pop and, and Brit rock alongside that because you couldn't escape it. Uh, in the day and it wasn't until I was in my late 20s I'd say that I started listening to 90s pop music so uh, I kind of went things a bit backwards in that respect.
0: Well you are right in saying that that is uh, a subject that we've not covered previously. We've not really covered that area of music because I think it's often termed as kind of You know, not mainstream, but the likes of Green Day and that were extremely popular, weren't they? And still are.
2: Yeah, I mean, 1994 was uh, monumental for punk. Prior to that, you you had sort of throughout the 80s, you had uh, the likes of uh, Bad Religion, uh, Fugazi, Minor Threat were bubbling under. In fact, the Bad Religion started a a record label, uh, Epitaph Records, which ended up putting out uh, The Offsprings second album, second or third album, Smash, in 94, and that was the one that broke them uh, across MTV. Uh, Rancid's Out Came the Wolves came out in 94, and that was all over MTV and MTV2 as well. Green Day were formally signed to uh, Lookout Records, who were uh, connected in some way to Epitaph Records. Dookie came out in again in 1994. So, for me, I, I still maintain that 1994 is is the best year I can remember for album releases, music releases, uh, because alongside all that, of course, you had um, Oasis were starting to make a name, uh, Blur were were coming up through the ranks, Suede were already doing their thing, so yeah, 94 was was huge for for punk music um, and and metal. And even Radio One were jumping in on it to some extent, but it kind of gets forgotten about when you when you watch the uh, the TV shows about the nineties and, and the two thousands. The two thousands um, had a lot of emo, had a lot of sort of skate punk, some forty one, that sort of thing. But in terms of uh, of when when they talk about nineties pop music, oftentimes the, the punk side gets forgotten about, even though it really was enormous. Why do you think that is? Because it's kind of raucous. Um, I I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, I do a radio show once a week uh, on a Monday night. And even now, I still think twice about the three or four heavier tracks that I usually drop into the playlist. Because it goes out between 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock at night. And I'm like... Do do people want to be listening to this kind of music at this time of night? But then ultimately, yeah, they do because, you know, it's just great music. But is that heavy
0: in hindsight or was it considered, you know, do you know what I'm what I'm getting at here? Like, Mm. is it still heavy? Like, um, I'm a, a minor fan of punk music from the 1970s. You listen to a lot
2: of it now. It's not actually that shocking. No, a lot of the 70s stuff was snotty and it was fast and it was fairly poorly played in some respects, but that was the the fun of it. But a lot of it was, was based around um, reggae for a start because it had that subversive vibe to it. So come the 90s, it had evolved into something a lot more fast and a lot more artistic, I think, but... That speed and volume meant that it didn't get too much daytime radio play, but it got enough. To go back to 1994, that was the year, was that the year that Kurt Cobain died, or was it 95? I think it was 95, actually. But Nirvana were getting a lot of radio play. 92, uh, Nevermind, came out. And Smells Like Teen Spirit was everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And that is, that. I mean, that is essentially a punk song. It had mainstream appeal, but for some reason, it was always considered too noisy. I mean, you, you certainly didn't get any of it on commercial radio. You weren't getting any on, um, trying to think what commercial stations we had back then, Power FM across the South Coast. You know, that that wasn't playing any punk at all, not even on a specialist show at night. So, I don't know. I suppose it's just people want to listen to easier music on the radio than 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 that.
0: Well, perhaps stuff that's considered a little bit more commercial. I remember a point somewhere around 2006 where suddenly guitar music, not necessarily the genres you're talking about, but guitar music in general were was everywhere suddenly the the synthesizers were put away and people were playing guitars again
2: it was essentially the second wave of indie or <laughs> i've seen it referred to recently in uh, retrospectives as landfill indie because there was a lot of it and very little very little of it had any value. You had the likes of, uh, well, Kaiser Chief started coming up then and you had Razor Light. I've never really been able to get a hook in, in much of that stuff because it, 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 it all felt a little showy, I think is the word I'm, I'm going for. It, it didn't really have any depth to it beyond, can we get an advertising deal with this song? The likes of, um, oh God, Kasabian. I was trying to remember that. I had a complete brain fart then. Um, yeah, the likes of Kasabian. I saw Kasabian, actually, before their first album came out. I, uh, I went to a gig down in Portsmouth to see uh, the Von Bondies playing. I don't know whether you remember them. They had one single. And Kasabian was supporting them. And they were these scruffy-looking oiks take, took to the stage in, in tracksuits. And they were terrible. I really, really didn't. I really took against them at that point. And I've never gotten over it. I still don't like them to this day. And to me, it kind of felt like that was... um, I don't like to be negative about music. I really don't because, you know, there's there's a lot of great stuff out there and and everybody loves something. But to me, Kasabian were kind of the worst excesses of music that could be chanted at football games. A lot of the late 2000s indie kind of had the same vibe. It was all, we've, we've written this song, can we get football fans to chant it when they're strutting down the street at the end of a game? And I couldn't get on board with that.
0: Well, now another one that jumps to mind is uh, Human by The Killers, which when I first started in radio, that song was everywhere. I think they were playing it on literally every show. And what you say I I believe is correct, that a lot of that stuff had passed off into the mi- into the mainstream and become very commercial, but almost too commercial. It had almost gone the way of the stuff from maybe 10 years previously that we normally talk about on this podcast, all the, all the pop stuff.
2: Yeah, if if it was 10 years beforehand, it would have been put out by Stock Aiken and Waterman. Well, tw- 20 years beforehand, it would have been put out by Stock Aiken and Waterman. It would have been synthesizers and pretty boys. And it, it had the same amount of depth to it, which isn't to take away from what Stock Aitken and Waterman were doing because, you know, they made an absolute killing off of it. But you listen back to some of that stuff now. Actually, um, I know it's a little earlier than, your, uh, than your, your usual area, but every now and then I remember uh, Kylie Minogue's uh, Je Ne Sais Pas Pourquoi. Because it's got a really pretty melody to it, and I, I think oh, yeah, I really fancy listening to that again because I haven't listened to it for ages. And every time I put it back on, I'm reminded afresh just how Casio tone it sounds. It sounds like it's been played on on the cheapest keyboard that they could get because it probably was. I think about the um, the sort of the production quality of it. I've been listening to Pet Shop Boys a lot these last couple of days. Um, I have finally caught up with "It's a Sin." Uh, the last over the last couple of days, the, the TV show, uh, and it's made me want to listen to Pet Shop Boys, and so they were putting out music at the same in the same time period with the same techniques, the same kind of, and that stuff sounds timeless. It sounds really good, so I, I don't know what the difference was, but you know, I guess I'll always gravitate towards the Pet Shop Boys, m- perhaps more so than Sonia.
0: Pet Shop Boys, I always thought, sounded like the era that they were in, but I suppose because they've kept creating music that was very similar, that had very similar vibe to it, um, maybe that's what makes it timeless.
2: I suppose it comes comes back to depth as well. Uh, I was list- I've, I've listened to probably a dozen times today, I've listened to Being Boring from their uh, fourth album, and that song is a masterpiece. Now, it's got the synths on it. I mean, th- this is '91, actually, so we we can talk about this one quite quite happily. Um, you know, it's got all the synths on it, but it- it's got some. It's got some uh, wah guitar pedal, uh, wah guitar, and and the lyrics. It's it's just beautiful. It, it hadn't occurred to me until uh, I was listening to an interview with someone a little while back. Uh, I think it was on Desert Island Discs. He he picked it because it's all about. Uh, The AIDS era, um, and seeing your friends disappear, and you you listen back to it, and it's it's just stunning, an absolute masterpiece of music. But the production on it is very late eighties because you know it was late eighties, but it still works. It still sounds good. And actually, with the amount of synth pop that you're getting nowadays, it's kind of come back around again it it could be put out now as a single from now and no one would bat an eyelid at it
0: for every year of certainly the early 90s pop music continually changed
2: yeah i th- i think it streamlined it it very much streamlined um the 70s was kind of this, this massive era of, I mean, you had your disco, you had your reggae, uh, punk came along, prog was still doing its thing. You had, still had your pop music. Then in the 80s, you got your, your synth, you got your pop music, the punk was kind of, well, it became new wave. And it was all still kind of scrabbling around trying to figure out what worked. Once we got into the 90s and we got computers that were cheap enough for studios to install, that was when everything got streamlined. You could program your settings, bring the band in, record a track in a couple of hours, mix it down, bang it out. That was that. And so everything got streamlined. And it, it got to a point where there were so many advances. Like you say, between 90 and 94 or 95, you think how many advances there were in in terms of um, recording with computers and plugins and and compression settings and things like that. suddenly, it was really easy, figuratively you know in a manner of speaking, it was really easy to record high quality pop music as quickly and cheaply as possible. And I think once we got into the 2000s, they pretty well nailed the formula for making successful pop music. And, well, they're still doing it.
0: Well, yeah, although I wouldn't say there's really any correlation between, say, uh, One Direction or The Wanted and NSYNC, you know.
1: I suppose it's it's
2: different with boy bands because they're... I guess they are – I mean, I, I have to say I'm I'm no expert when it comes to boy bands at all. The first boy boy band I remember were Bros, and I hated them. <laughs> and then I remembered um, – Have you seen the documentary, though? I haven't. It was wonderful. Oh, yeah. It was absolutely wonderful. I loved it.
0: Yeah, it was amazing.
2: Then I remembered New Kids on the Block, and I hated them. And then Take That came along, and guess what? I really hated
1: Take That. <laughs>
2: I mean, with hindsight, I was just being an ass. I was just being a stupid teenage boy who was like, "Well, I'm into Guns and Roses, and I don't need any of your pop music." Again, with hindsight, you know, I look back on it, and do you know what? It's it's great pop music, and I can't take that from it, and and I do enjoy it now. I you know, I, I was listening. One of the first episodes of, of of this show, I listened to. You were talking about Steps, uh, not Steps, um, S Club. Um, I love S Club Seven. And even at the time I, I guess I kinda liked S Club seven, but you know, I couldn't tell anybody. Like I say, I I wasn't allowed to like S Club really because you know I was I was well into punk at that point. But do you know what? It was really good pop music.
0: What was the one track that made you go, I think I like this?
2: Uh Reach. Was it Reach?
0: Wow. It was Reach. Reach is such yeah. a a happy song. And I can imagine that a lot of the stuff you were listening to before is happy in a different way.
2: Yeah. Yeah, very much so, Um, and also very, very angry. Very, very angry, because, you know, that's just what metal can be. Do you know what, going back to a previous question, I think that's why a lot of metal didn't get any airplay, because it was phenomenally angry and very sweary in places as well. There was a, a Guns N' Roses track that's got a really good spoken monologue with loads of swearing in it, so of course me and all my mates knew it word for word and we would recite it in out, out of earshot of our parents but um yeah no you couldn't hear reach and not love it it would be like seeing kittens and saying no i don't want your kittens you know you you can't hate reach it's such a it's such a wonderful pop song
0: yeah you you can't say no to it as you say and uh i know that um at my local university, the one I went to, a few years after I graduated, they had Chris Stark from Radio One in there as a DJ and their summer ball. And you have to think this is maybe five years ago, and he was playing um, Reach in the silent disco. And what he did was he played Reach and he took off his headphones, and what he heard was this large crowd. If you know, you know what a silent disco is, right? So he can't hear the music when he takes off his headphones and everyone in the room is singing reach up for the stars instead of reach for the stars. How does
2: how does that work?
0: I have no idea. And there were people going, oh, but they grew up with this. And then you go, well, no, actually, these kids are probably like, you know, 18, 20. You're talking about stuff that's like 15, 20 years previously. They were only just about born when this music was popular?
2: Oh man, I'm, I'm 40 now. I turned 40 last September. My son is 16 at this point. And I think about the music that I loved when I was his age, 1996. So I was very heavily into the, into the uh, skate punk at that point. It occurred to me that the music I listened to when I was his age he has the same attitude to it as I did to the Beatles. Does that mean that face-to-face or no effects or Pennywise are to him what the Beatles were to me? And I can't, I can't reconcile that in my head. I, I can't accept that.
0: It's a crazy thing, isn't it? Because about 10 years ago, I was, um, I was talking to some colleagues that i had at that time and i said i do a radio show that celebrates the uh, the 90s and um sort of to 2005 that's the cutoff point and they said that's a very unusual thing that because it seemed too recent to have something that was like that but time moves really quickly
2: yeah no 2005 was only yesterday <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah that's what you say um, to me, it feels like a, a long time ago, and, and I'm sure at some point I'm going to do an episode which I think is just all about 2005 in pop culture, um, because I think that's why the big bang of guitar music of '06, which is when I remember it happening, happened because '05 was just nuts,
2: right? Do you know it's weird? I I, th- I think back, I can't actually pinpoint any particular tracks. Off the top of my head, from 2005, because I think at that point I was working in a job that I hated. Uh, and mostly I, I had a disc player and I had tons of minidiscs of albums that I'd recorded. And I think pretty much the only Radio 1 I listened to at that point was uh, there was a, a, a punk uh, yeah, it was just punk show that they that they had once a week. Mike Davies presented it called the lock up and it was on at something stupid like one till three in the morning so i'd I'd set an alarm for one o'clock, wake up, press record on my mini disc player, and then go back to bed so I could listen to it the next day and so the end result is that. I actually don't think I could pinpoint much new music that came out in 2005 off the top of my head. And yet I would know, you know, if you were to say, oh, well, this came out and that came out. You know, oh, yeah, of course it did. Yeah. But to me, it was just all I was listening to at that point was the stuff I already knew because I was 25. And therefore, you're not allowed to listen to new music anymore (laughs) because, you know, once you get out of your teens, that's it. You've fixed. You've absolutely fixed on on a. Yeah, I think 2005, didn't Oasis release um, Don't Believe the Truth? Was that what it was called? Lila was the, yeah, Lila was the single of it.
0: I remember, yeah, it was used in a FIFA game.
2: That's about all I know about that track. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, no, see, see it's, it's, this goes into something that I, I think about a lot, in that we have musical waymarkers. in that you you might not know exactly when a, when you did a thing, but you can remember the song you were listening to. Um, and Lila, uh, I remember at that point, it was in the charts. I won a competition on Radio 1 to go and see Foo Fighters recording a, a session at Maid of Vale Studios. And there was about 15 of us in the studio while the band were playing right in front of us. And they did a cover of Lila because you know it was the live lounge and they had their thing where they always did covers. So yeah, 2005, I can remember that. I want to
0: know where Alien Ant Farm
2: fit into all of this stuff. Alien Ant Farm were a really weird one. I have their first album on CD somewhere. And, and Anthology, imagine your first album being called Anthology. The only tracks anyone, well, there's two tracks that people might be able to pinpoint from it. Obviously, you've got Smooth Criminal. Everybody knows that one. Uh, movies was the other one. I don't think anybody could could name a third track off that album. I couldn't, and I've got it somewhere.
0: Alien Amp Farm. I mean, I haven't thought about them for for ages. Um, I mean, you mentioned Sum Forty One earlier, and, and obviously Blink One Eight Two uh, were also massive. I mean, ever I think every cover band going does all the small things.
2: See, this is the thing that I think that, that frustrates me when when people do. Oh no, dude, punk music. it's it's, it's raucous and it's stupid. It's like, yeah, but it it was huge. It was enormous. As so well, it's kind of frustrating that okay, Heart, for example. I'm guessing Heart are now playing music from the '90s and and 2000s because you know the passage of time and and we '90s kids are now the ones with all the bills that pay all the you know spend all the money, so they're advertising the station to us. Um, we were listening to punk music, we were listening to a lot of punk music at the time, but you won't get it on Heart, and I I don't know why. I mean, you could probably Make the argument that Green Day sold more albums than many of the pop acts of the same era. But you won't get any Green Day on Heart.
0: And yet, at the time, I remember buying Now albums and a lot of those bands appeared on those compilations mm. because they were top-selling yeah. and, and popular. But you said earlier that um, radio at the time wasn't playing a lot of this stuff in, in daytime.
2: It was playing more than you would hear these days. Uh, one of my colleagues at work has Radio One on at the moment, and I, I stopped a podcast I was listening to earlier because I, I thought, "What's that?" I can and they were playing. I don't know. I don't know who it was. Some something along the lines of "Bring Me the Horizon." It sound sounded that kind of metal sort of thing, and it struck me as unusual because it was rock, and. Radio one aren't playing a lot of rock at the moment. It's mostly uh, dance, hip hop, R and B. Um, but back in the nineties, I think there was a lot more getting played on the radio. But it was still considered niche. It was it was a really strange. It was like Schrodinger's genre. It was both popular and not popular all at the same time. You know, Green Day, not that. Long after it was uh two thousand and one I think they released uh two thousand and two i think they released american Idiot they were selling out stadiums touring that album, but you still won't get that on the throwback stations now because it's punk music and it's 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 such a an odd thing
0: i mean i I assume that when you're you're discussing this, you're talking about it from the u k perspective but I wonder if you looked over across the pond and you looked at their um, their equivalents, so their compilations, their radio stations, maybe their stations are playing more of this stuff in their more mainstream places.
2: I think, I think you're absolutely right. I do think you're absolutely right. We do have a tendency to fixate on dance music and pop music in Europe as a whole, uh, whereas in America they do tend to go more for their guitar music. Uh we we did in the 90s for and and early 2000s for, you know, Brit rock, um, Brit pop, that that kind of thing, the indie stuff. But yeah, I th- I think you're absolutely right. And certainly the the um the radio landscape in America is very different. They they have a lot more uh smaller college stations. And so they naturally will play a lot more rock music than than you get Because we don't have so many small independent stations over here. Certainly these days, I I don't think we have any small independent stations anymore. Not on airwaves.
0: No, I think most of it has died out. My final question here is, is it just that the scope is just too wide for everything to be included and still appeal to somebody say you were listening to heart and suddenly they stuck in like you know one of a a punk track a track that would be seen as oh we shouldn't play that because someone won't like it the chances are someone's going to turn off right but then if someone turned on and went oh i like that and then they they follow it up with slam dunk the funk by five they're not really going to be that thing but you know is it that it's just too wide
2: yes yeah absolutely um I remember when I was at uh, university studying radio, uh, one of my lecturers was, was at the time broadcasting a show on um, gold. Uh, I don't know whether you remember that one. We were talking about um, playlist sizes. And he was telling me that this station had something like 3,000 songs in its playout system. And I couldn't believe it. I had t- like 25,000 tracks on my iPod. At that moment, at that point. And, and I said to him, so have I got 10 times as much music on my iPod as you? And, and he said, yeah, but not all of those songs on your iPod are going to go down well on the radio at all. It's all about, to some extent, scientifically dialing into what it is the listener wants to hear. And that's what Heart does. And that's what these, these stations do. And they do it very well, to be fair. They know what their listeners want to hear, and their listeners want to hear the pop songs that they enjoyed singing along to with their friends. And if they do play anything that's a bit more raucous, it's almost guaranteed to be Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit, uh Green Day's Basket Case, you might hear offspring um come out and play or no it'd be pretty fly for a white guy actually if they were to play any offspring uh you'd certainly hear a bit of blink 182 but that's about it for that kind of pop music uh, that kind of punk music and I, I think that's as far as as the mainstream would go which is kind of a shame but then on the other hand i've still got all that music and I still keep that music in my heart. So I don't need it and I don't think many people need it to be played on commercial radio.
0: Do you feel like people are missing out on it?
2: Um that's a I I I I wish I wish it had, a lot of it had been given a more fair crack of the whip at the time. I'd I I'd hear a lot of Boys Zone and Spice Girls and latterly Westlife all over the radio. And I think this is so insipid. Why don't they play some bad religion? Because they're actually talking about stuff. They're talking about the world. They're talking about what's going on, man. This, you know, this is important. Let's have some anarchy, not Spice Girls. But it serves a different purpose, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I I think so. If you were to recommend, because... Like I said, we have talked a lot about pop music on this particular thing because this is 90s and noughties and pop music was really popular. But if there were people out there who perhaps hadn't heard much of the genres that you were into at that particular time, what would you recommend for them to to try as like a starter?
2: Honestly, um, there was a whole thing in the mid to late 90s of – the punk labels would put out five pound samplers, five dollar samplers, five pounds over here. And they would have generally about 20 tracks on them from all the different bands or a selection of different bands on their roster. So you had Fat Records would put out their um, their fat samplers. Uh, I would suggest uh, Fat 3, Physical Fatness, that one was called. That's up on Apple Music, and I guess Spotify as well. Um, Epitaph—they um, had their Punkorama series. Punkorama again. Punkorama three was fantastic, absolutely phenomenal collection. And for a tenor, you'd get forty tracks. By it wasn't forty bands because the, the, there was usually like there was a, a no effects track on on both of those, um, but. You know, you'd get 40 different tracks for a tenor by all those different bands, and it opens up a whole new world. So, yeah, I, I would suggest going down the uh, the Epitaph Punkarama series and the Fat Records samplers. Well, I'm sure
0: that people will go and check that out. And I'd like to say that this has been... Um both delightful and just intriguing because it's not an area that i particularly go down i remember a lot of the bands that you were talking about but not so much as i heard them all the time and so it's been very interesting to talk to you and i'd like to say darren thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today
2: thank you very much for having me if you ever need a uh, a punk rock correspondent then please feel free to give me a shout
0: And now it's time for celebrity birthdays, and I'm joined all the way from Canada by podcaster Tobin. Welcome to the podcast, and uh, good luck in trying to guess the name of a celebrity who is celebrating their birthday in the week of this broadcast. Um, So, Tobin, without further ado, please start your questioning.
3: Okay, um... Let's see. Is it a male or female?
0: Well, it's a yes or no question.
3: Oh, sorry. Um, Okay, let's see. Yes or no question.
0: So if you asked me if it was male, I'd say yes.
3: Okay, okay. Um, Let's see. Are they in Spider-Man? No. (laughs) Are they British? No. Uh, Are they Canadian?
0: Yes. Yes part canadian
3: part Canadian. okay on the father or are they is it on the father's side what do you mean like is 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 the canadian part the dad or the mom
0: well i don't have that information in front of me i can tell okay. you that they are canadian american
3: okay okay were they on how i met your mother
0: no, they weren't. No, uh, you might have to go a little bit further back.
3: Okay, okay. Were they on an 80s TV show?
0: They were on an 80s TV show, yes. And uh, also, a li- little bit of a clue, they had a fairly successful film career as well.
3: Oh, okay, okay. Ugh. I- I'm thinking of a name that comes to mind, but if I blur it out, I'm like going to be embarrassed if it's wrong. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, hmm. I'm just trying to think of other yes or no questions here. Were they, or yeah, were they in back to the future?
0: Yes, they were.
3: Is it Michael J. Fox?
0: It is Michael J. Fox. Yeah, that was very fast.
3: Oh, nice. Well done to me.
0: Yeah, well I done.
3: Expected, I expected to fall flat on my face, to be honest.
0: <laughs> no, that was, that was probably the quickest. Um, Despite your long pauses, uh, which I've, cut out in the edit um despite your long pauses that's the quickest um that we've ever got a celebrity on here so well done you hold the record for that and of course uh, if people are asking because we do have that you know this is called the 90s and Nauties podcast what's michael j fox's connection to the 90s or noughties well he's been in loads of stuff and really he was the voice of Stuart little uh, which was a huge film in the late 90s so there we are. There's a connection and loads of other stuff as well. So happy birthday to Michael J. Fox and um thank you, Tobin, for playing Celebrity Birthdays.
3: No worries. Actually, I like that little Timbit that you uh, you gave me. Timbit, Tim Horton's Canadian reference. But <laughs> yeah, I didn't even actually know that you did voice of Stuart Little, so wow. News to me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And that brings us to the end of this podcast. I'd like to thank everyone who contributed to it and you for listening. If you'd like some extra content, please go and check out the 90s and noughties YouTube channel where you'll find taste tests and other 90s and 2000s related content. You can also come and join the live stream at twitch.tv slash 90s and UK. And that happens every Monday at 10.30pm UK time. So from me, Jamie Dyer, thank you very much for listening and bye-bye for now.
1: Thank you for listening to 90s and Noughties UK, a podcast on UK pop culture of the 90s and 2000s. Please remember to rate, comment and subscribe on your favourite podcast provider. If you want to contact the show, email 90sandnaughties at gmail.com, tweet us on at 90 UK on Twitter or check us out on Facebook, 90 UK.